Welcome to episode 16 of Breakout Culture. I'm Ed Vasey, none other than the culture editor of Country and Townhouse magazine. And I'm Charlotte Metcalf, and I'm the associate editor at Country and Townhouse. We want to start this week by introducing our first guest, Charles Spencer, Earl Spencer, of course, who's been forging an increasingly impressive reputation as a historian of note. He's written seven history books, including the bestseller To Catch a King, Charles II's Great Escape. But today we want to talk about The White Ship, the subject of his latest book, because this Thursday will mark 900 years exactly since the White Ship sank, killing Henry I's son and only legitimate heir, William. We all know about the White Ship, of course, but I think very few of us understand just how catastrophic the impact of that sinking was. So here to tell us all about the book is Charles Spencer. Welcome, Charles. Thank you, Ed. Thanks for having me. Good morning, Charles. And I'm so glad we've got you on at last because I heard you talk on Radio 4 about this book when it first came out in September. And I was absolutely gripped. It's such an incredible (laughs) story because it started off so well, didn't it, with Henry I sailing home from France in triumph. And then there was this horrendous and unnecessary drunken accident that turned everything on its head. So tell our listeners the story. Yes, well, basically, uh, the white ship was the sort of great ship of its day. And Henry I, you're quite right, he arrives in Barfleur Harbour, sort of uh, just to the right of Cherbourg. And he's going home in triumph. He's spent the last three or four years defeating the French. Uh, Louis the Fat of France has finally been succumbed. Uh, and, and he's had to admit, the French king has had to admit, that William, uh, who Ed mentioned in his intro, uh, was the lawful heir to the dukedom of Normandy. And so Henry I is quite an old-fashioned man. He has his plans in place. And when he's offered the white ship as this glorious vessel to take him back in triumph to England, he says, no, he'll carry on with his arrangements. But what he'll do, he would love to have his son, William, and, and other illegitimate children of his and his nephews and nieces, the great men and women of his court and, and the bureaucrats and the generals, they should go in the white ship and enjoy it. And um, the king sets off on the 25th of November, as you say, exactly 900 years ago. Uh, and his son and his hangers-on get rip-roaringly drunk in the harbour for several hours. And then they ply the crew with wine as well. And they push off sometime before midnight on the 25th of November at top speed, actually. The the oarsmen are bending their backs, trying to beat Henry I back to Southampton. And uh, they hit a rock. It's still there, the Key Berth Rock. And they hit it at full steam. And the the ship is staved in on one side. And luckily um, for history, and, and certainly for people trying to write about this period, there is one eyewitness who's a butcher from Rouen called Barreau, and he sees the, the, the ghastliness unfold in front of him. Where's he standing, or, or where's he then? How does he see it? Well, he sees it from a prone position because he's scrambled onto a bit of broken mast with one of Henry I's leading knights, a man called Delegle. Um, my theory on why this one very humble man survives, where 250 of the most important people in Anglo-Norman society perish, is because of what he's wearing. Uh, he was wearing the offcuts of his trade, you know, sort of goatskin and sheepskin uh, tunic. And actually, once you're out of the very cold water of the Channel, um, you do have a chance of, you know, I, I wasn't very good at science, but I think it's specific latent heat or something. Uh, but anyway, the, the wool, even when wet, will keep you warm enough to survive. And in the morning, he was picked up by three fishermen. But by that stage, everyone had drowned, including 
uh, the king's son, William, in, in, in truly tragic circumstances, because he had actually got away in a little rowing boat, the one lifeboat on, on the white ship. Um, but he heard his half-sister, Margaret of Perche, calling for her life, uh, come, telling her brother not to be a coward and leave her there. And he ordered the little rowing boat to turn around. And unfortunately, it was swamped by people who were drowning. And they all went down, apart from the, the butcher. Oh, my God, I didn't know that. Um, and what made you decide you wanted to write about this? Well, uh, Ed, I was about five years ago, I was uh, hurriedly uh, asked to give a, a speech at Leeds Castle on the Queens of England. And uh, it was to a very learned audience of uh, international historians. And I thought, well, they're going to know everything I know, and, and more probably about Boadicea or Elizabeth I or Victoria. So I thought I'd throw in a queen they, who, who was meant to be queen but never was. And she's the sister of the prince who drowns on the white ship. Um, and she's called Matilda. And she was left by Henry I as his successor. And all the barons and the bishops uh, in England and Normandy, they promised to uh, see this through and, and observe that, that, that she was to be the, the, the future queen. But actually, when it came to it, the one man of great note who had got off the white ship uh, was Henry I's nephew, Stephen of Blois. And Stephen nipped over the channel as soon as the king had died and seized the throne for himself. And it ended up with this ghastly, bloody civil war. But I just thought this is such an interesting tale. And when I told it um, to these historians at Leeds Castle, they all had a nodding acquaintance with the story, but that was sort of it. And then, to be honest, it was about three years ago, I saw that the 900th anniversary was coming up. And I thought, well, if, I, if I'm ever going to bring this story back to life, this is the, the hook to hang it on. And it, well, it's, it, certainly I mean, it's, is. it's an amazing drama. Funny enough, I feel a sort of an affinity with Matilda because Wallingford in the constituency yes. in which I used to represent was one of her bases. In fact, they laid... Absolutely. Wallingford, my goodness, I forgot that was your, your constituency. Yeah, that was the, the, that was the key part uh, holding out for her in the Thames Valley. And um, yes, it, it seemed to be untakeable. Because Wallingford Castle was finally dismantled during the Civil War and it continues to throw amazing relics. But it occurs to me the white ship going down reminds me a bit, obviously, of the, the Mary Rose going down. Yes. But has anyone found... I mean, this is a very stupid question. I should probably know the answer. But has anyone found the white ship or artefact? How comments? funny you say that. I'm literally talking. There's this fantastic um, American, uh, I'd have to say eccentric, but in the nicest possible <laughs> way, um, uh, who's invited me. We're going diving um, in mid-December uh, at Keyberth Rock. And I, I made my excuses, having only been scuba diving once. And uh, he said, no, 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 we'll be fine. We're going in. So, yeah, I'm going to dive in if the channel and, um, you know, the virus and everything is, is in the right place in mid-December. I did point out it is 900 years ago and it is a rock outside a harbour. Presumably a lot of ships have sunk there over the times. But he's, he's an absolute, um, well, he's an optimist of note. So we're going to give it a go. But this is big news, Charles, because diving in the channel is not, <laughs> it's not a sort of recreational scuba dive. I know. I, mean, I, think, I, I think I'll make my excuses and stay on board making the hot chocolate. <laughs> Are you saying that this is the first sort of attempt to sort of look at to see if the white ship is down there? People must have looked for it before or not. I don't think they have, actually. I mean, they're very... The people of Barfleur seem to be incredibly relaxed about it. I, before, before the virus broke out, I had contacted the one photographer I could find in Barfleur and asked if he'd like to come out and take some photographs of the rock at low tide. And he went, mm, not really. So I think... <laughs> <laughs> in a very French way, with this a hug. hilarious. And, and I, I think that there is, a, there is a memorial in Barfleur Harbour 
saying that if you look that way, that's where the King of England's son drowned. Um, but they sort of get on with their, their, their fishing and, and tourism. And, and, and you know, Barfleur now, when, if you see it, my goodness, it's beautiful. It's, it's as you would imagine a French fishing village to be. Um, but in its day, it was the bustling port. It's now silted up largely. So, you know, Cherbourg, as I mentioned briefly earlier, you know, Cherbourg got the trade. But um, yeah, they've, they've come to terms with having this extraordinary moment of history. Because what's so astonishing about this, it's not just a shipwreck where the royal heir dies. But as I, as I mentioned, you know, you end up with this civil war, which actually was horrendous, um, not just for the people of Wallingford, but, you know, for, the, for the, 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 the general population of England, it was a time they, it came to be called the anarchy. And then after that, you, you end up with a sort of stalemate. And it's the end of Norman rule. And it goes sideways to uh, Empress Matilda, the one who should have become Queen of England's son, Henry Plantagenet. And we get the Plantagenets until the Tudors take over more than 300 years later. So it really was an earth-shattering moment. I have to say, I think this is the gift that we'll keep on giving. You could turn a, turn this into a drama, but then the documentary to find the white ship is, is going to be like, you know, James Cameron and the Titanic. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> Well, do you know, it was it was broken up eventually. What's so unfortunate is I think it's because the, the crew and the passengers were so drunk that they all came to an, the end they did. Because in the morning, a lot of the ship was still there, intact. And the Royal Treasury had been put on, the treasure chests had been put on board the white ship, and they were still there. So it can't have been pulverized. Um, and I think if some people had stayed on board rather than panicking and jumping into the sea, they might have had a chance of surviving. You know, this is what, what I want. I love digging around in this sort of period because I hadn't appreciated that really almost nobody, uh, I'm talking about less than 1% of people could swim. Um, it was not a pastime. And uh, the only people I can find who could swim were, were those who lived for fishing and they had to retrieve nets or whatever. And those were people who were commissioned by the families of those who, who who were lost on the white ship to try and find their bodies because it was very important to to have a Christian burial. Yeah, interesting. Amazing. One of the things I was really intrigued about was how far ahead was the first ship then? I mean, and th there was just clearly no way of getting any signal to them to turn back and help. I mean, it just seemed ah, to be sinking all by good, itself. Brilliant question, actually, Charlotte. So what, what, what you have is certainly in Barfleur, they heard the screams of the... Um, the people after they hit the rock, but they just assumed it was the royal party had gone up a notch and they were just having a, an uproarious <laughs> time on board. And do you know, I reckon it was about um, 10 or 12 nautical miles ahead, the king's ship, and they, some people said they heard it in the night. Now, whether they wanted to just be associated with a moment of high drama or whether they could have heard it, it is scientifically possible. I mean, I don't bore the reader with this, but it is scientifically possible on a still night in the winter like that, that they could have heard uh, 200 people screaming at once. But whether they did or not, we'll never know. Well, thank you very much. Well, thank you. What fun. Really engrossing chat. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's just... Amazing book. And we won't speculate about uh, book number eight, which is presumably coming down the... Yeah, <laughs> I've got to get that going. I tell you what, Ed, it's so difficult. I, because, I, I mean, taking on a book is such a commitment. You've got to make sure you've got the right subject. So I do tend to let things settle for a bit before before embarking on it full time, you know, as a full project. Are we allowed to know what the next one is? Well, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. <laughs> <laughs> yes, thank you so much. That was absolutely fascinating. Thank you very much indeed. Not at all. What a pleasure.
Now, before we move on to art, we wanted to stay with books for a minute and remind our listeners that the Hey on Why or Hey on Wi-Fi Festival, as Boris Johnson nicknamed it, is back with a digital winter weekend that you can find by going to heyfestival.com. Starts this Thursday and runs till Sunday evening. The big talk is apparently Elton John is going to be talking to Arsene Wenger about their shared love of football. That is a must-see. Sunday <laughs> at 8.30, I assume it's 8.30pm rather than 8.30 in the morning. 8.30pm. And not PM. superstars as well. Dawn French, Ruth Jones, David Olusoga, Marcus Brigstock, William Boyd, John Banville, James O'Brien and Susie Dent, among others. The Booker prize winner you'll know who it is by now but we don't yet as we're recording it before the booker prize is announced will be there and lots of new writers like caris bray whose novel when the lights go out is about the cataclysmic effect of climate change and every night there's going to be candlelit storytelling with ghostly tales from john lanchester Sarah Moss and Kate Summerscale. There's also going to be your favourite there, Ed, uh, Lee Child, talking to his biographer, Heather Martin. I love Lee Child. Yes, I thought you did. Yeah, well, he's going to be there. That's a bit of a... His publisher used to send me his books before they were published, but they've taken me off the list now. Very depressing. Well, that's probably because you've read them all. (laughs) No, the latest book I actually had to go and buy. But it's not about the cost, obviously. It's about knowing that you've read the book two months before it comes out. That's really... I used to treasure that. So if any of the publishers are listening... Uh, I'm sure they all are. <laughs> please, please put me back on the list. Well, there are also two of my favourites going to be there. Um, Heather MacDonald, who wrote H's for Hawk, and James Rebanks, the brilliant tweeting shepherd, both of whom I've interviewed for Country and Town House, which shows no we're way. just... Yeah, well, we're so ahead of the curve at the magazine. Um, but they're going to be talking together to Andy Fryers about their books, Vesper Flights and English Pastoral. There are also some new events, like the incredibly successful podcaster Elizabeth Day talking about her new book, Philosophy, to Dolly Alderton. Do you realise that her How to Fail podcast has been so successful that she actually had a one-woman show at the London Palladium? Yes, I did know that, and I listened to her <laughs> podcast. And in fact, I met her at the last physical Hey on Why, which I go to every year, thanks to Country and Townhouse. <laughs> and I met her at the dinner sponsored by the chairman, uh, Carolyn Michelle, and she's charming. Well, if we could just... Um get as successful as her podcast that would be good so but and while we're talking about incredibly successful podcasts please can we remind you about our own very successful and popular sister podcast house guests with carol annette talking to big names in the interior design business you'll find that alongside ours on our website www.countryandtownhouse.co.uk but let's do stop talking about everyone else's podcast and focus on our own which is pretty fab though i say it myself and move on to art ed so everybody knows who hauser and worth are they're a very cool contemporary art gallery and a few years ago they opened an outstanding gallery in somerset near bruton and it's attracted over seven hundred and seventy thousand visitors since it opened in 20 14. It's really put Bruton on the map. In fact, it's even attracted former Chancellor George Osborne <laughs> to get a house down there. If that is not the epitome of cool, I don't oh, know. Dear, what no, no. <laughs> I can't. I can think of other things. <laughs> with exhibitions all year round, fabulous places to eat, a beautiful garden designed by Piet Udolf, 
with the brand new Dursley Farm Shop. All of these are now open to the public, lockdown or no lockdown. The main gallery is on the edge of town, but in Bruton itself, Hauser and Worth has another gallery called Make. It's housed in two Georgian townhouses. It showcases crafted objects and contemporary making. It's got a new exhibition, Gathering, that will open online on November the 20th. And here to tell us about that, what she thinks of George Osborne, and what's in the main <laughs> gallery, obviously everyone will be hoping he's open again on 3rd of December, is director of Hauser & Worth Somerset, Dave Vanagan. Hi, hi. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to uh, be speaking to you. I think what might be helpful is just to perhaps um, give a bit of a kind of um, overview in terms of Hauser & Worth as a gallery, just because uh, some people perhaps may not be aware that we are one of, like the Hauser & Worth Somerset is one of several locations worldwide. And it was founded in 1992 by Manuela and Ivan Wirth and Ursula Hauser, um, with Mark Peo joining as partner and president in 2000. And actually what some people may or may not know is that Manuela and Ivan Wirth actually live in Somerset. They call this they, their home. You know, it's interesting to also kind of note that we represent over 80 living artists and also estates. And so this is actually currently reflected within our current exhibition program in Somerset, where we're showing a contemporary artist of the now, Nicole Eisenman, who's New York-based painter, but also extends her practice into sculpture. And she takes up sort of two of the five gallery spaces we have here on site. Um, and alongside that exhibition is Lee Lozano, which is actually an estate that we represent. And it was this second estate we took on over 16 years ago. These are actually sort of two artists um, working in New York across different generations. Um, Lee Lozano is no longer with us. We're showing it's, it's sort of her estate, whereas Nicole Eisenman is very much sort of embedded in the current scene of New York. Um, both are sort of predominantly kind of, um, I'd say predominantly known as, uh, as painters, but their work um, extends, extends that into sort of sculpture and drawing. The Lee Lozano exhibition is focusing on a series that she did um, sort of a couple of years after she moved to New York from Chicago, um, focusing sort of the, it's like 1962-63, and it focuses on what is called sort of her aeroplane series. And so these are a series of works that kind of are um, figurative, but verging on abstraction. What's unique about Lee is actually she had a, you know, in comparison, a very short creative period that was just that lasted just over 10 years um, and so you know it this is an incredible sort of moment to kind of really interrogate this uh, sort of the early years of her time in New York and the works that came out of that whereas Nicole Eisenman is you know an artist very much sort of you know working today she is you know lauded as one of the most important painters of you know of her generation she really is sort of um, an artist who's influenced by um, not only the art historical canon and sort of um, you know the classical kind of you know, reclining nude of, you know, of Titian, of Manet, but then she's also very much inspired by contemporary culture, such as sort of, you know, uh, like posters, mad magazines and things. So you have this incredible melting pot across generations within her work. And she's also someone who sort of challenges the idea of kind of gender and sexuality and that sort of scene throughout her work. You mentioned a bit about sort of the, the Udolf Field, who obviously Pete... Pete Odoff designed and just to kind of help place him as well he also as you all probably know designed the High Line in New York and uh, Noma in Copenhagen and the Millennium Garden in Chicago so it's really wonderful to actually have one of his gardens here available you know year-round for people to visit and that was something sort of during um, once the sort of the lockdown was lifted earlier in the year that was the first um, element that we opened invited
inviting people back because we really understood the importance of kind of offering that natural sort of gathering space. I can really vouch for it because it is absolutely a beautiful place. I came down there last summer when we met Dea and you've got a wonderful restaurant there as well, which obviously isn't open at the moment, but will be again, we hope, the Roth Bar and Grill. Um, it really is a fabulous day out. And you've also got Make, which we're looking forward to talking about because I completely fell in love with some of the work there, particularly by Katie Sprague and Romilly Somery-Smith, who makes beautiful pieces. Well, the pieces I saw were made out of antique thimbles with bits of coral and pearl. And both those artists are going to be part of the new gathering exhibition, aren't they, that's um, going to open online on the 20th? Just to sort of um, sort of set and make up, it's basically Make House More Somerset isn't on site of Dursley, so it's actually an extension of the gallery on Bruton High Street. Um, and essentially it's committed to showcasing the best of emerging established makers, both nationally and internationally. All the works are for sale and there's a real emphasis on sort of specially commissioned works for the exhibitions. The specific show gathering, it, it sort of looks at makers that seek narratives in nature and landscape through material explorations. And the materials can be anything from sort of wood, paper, ceramics, or, you know, in the case of Romilly, as you mentioned, precious jewels, metals and found objects. Um, and I think it's just also important to mention that the, the show is for makers. And so we've mentioned Katie and Romilly, and then there's also Jane's, Jane Ponsford and Mark Reddy. I'd love to know a bit about Hauser and Worth's place in the local community, because I think, um, you know, part of the whole debate about culture is it's all very London centric. In fact, there was a Tory MP who recently said that um, uh, football is to the north what opera and ballet is to the south, implying Ouch. that uh, the <laughs> minute you get out of London, uh, everything becomes a bit arty. All, all this arty farty stuff isn't taken seriously. But um, how has Hauser and Worth gone down in Somerset? And also, I suspect that a gallery like yours has a big impact on the local economy, if that doesn't sound too crude. Uh, just as the Turner in Margate has had a big impact on the town and so on and so forth. I think one of the sort of um, great reasons as to why Hausenworth Somerset was a success and is a success in this area is because I think from moment one, you know, we understood the importance of, you know, creating a space that was for the local community, that the local community, um, you know, could feel welcomed at. And also that, you know, even down to the to the buildings that we inhabit. So we inhabit you know, historical farm buildings. It's an old model working farm, um, over 250 years old. And it was important to us that those buildings still looked like farm buildings, that it wasn't kind of, you know, transformed into some stark type building, but it really stayed in keeping with, you know, the landscape, the local and the history. This part of the world is becoming very much a destination site for people, isn't it? It's much trendier than Notting Hill. <laughs> well, well, you know, you know, absolutely. And I think we, we see that, you know, the, the more sort of, um, you know, the more things for people to come and enjoy and celebrate what makes Somerset special is, is always just, you know, a, a wonderful thing. And I think, you know, we, the farm shop, which you mentioned earlier, I mean, that, that we just opened um, recently. And that in itself, not only does it kind of... Um, not only does it sort of celebrate the produce and the food that we have on the farm and that we grow and rear on the farm, but it also celebrates local producers and, um, you know, and makers of, of sort of, uh, you know, ceramics or jams or um, honeys and things. So again, it, it, you know, all, all these sort of different locations and restaurants, you know, in town, I think everyone sort of understands the importance of kind of really highlighting what makes Somerset, um, 
you know, unique, but also to, you know, keep it, you know, keep it protected. And it isn't something that's, you know, it's not that kind of London descends here and changes it. It's more about sort of people really coming and understanding what makes this area special. One thing I wanted to ask you, um, Dea, was that how much do you show local artists and how much do you support them? Well, Don McCullen is actually a really interesting example who, um, you know, Don McCullen, he is, is very local to us. He lives about 20 minutes away. And actually, when we opened the gallery in 2014, he wasn't one of our represented artists. But, you know, we, you know, we developed a relationship with him. And, and since then, we've come to represent him um, we closed actually his exhibition um, earlier this year here in Somerset, um, which was you know incredibly well attended and and celebrated, which is wonderful. Um, and you know Don is very much an artist who well he calls him sorry he's not an artist he's a photographer he's very specific about that um, but he photographs the Somerset landscape you know and this is all alongside his you know incredibly celebrated um, global war photography of the yeah and they're beautiful his photographs of Somerset aren't they they're absolutely stunning absolutely and he calls them the, sort of the antidote to all the sort of war photography and war reportage that he's experienced over the year it's sort of you know the photographing the Somerset landscapes is really you know that you know that solace that he that he finds in it is is incredible and that passion and that feeling comes through in the works um and i guess also just to kind of mention in terms of um sort of like you know in terms of our exhibition program it does uh, really focus on our represented artists but a way that we can work with local artists that we don't represent with is through our events and education program and this can be um, via practical workshops this can be through talks um, so so there are still opportunities in in, in different ways I mean I've, I've been to Hausenworth a couple of times it's a fantastic place I've got friends that um live around there and obviously I'm holding on for my George Osborne invitation again well if you if you don't you know if, if you don't get that invitation um there's also the Dursley farmhouse here on site that oh, yeah. rented. so six six bedrooms <laughs> just just in case yeah. you need to bring some friends brilliant thank you so much dear that was great thank you so much for telling us about it my absolute pleasure thank you so much now, before we go, there is, of course, one pressing piece of TV we have to discuss. Ed, how many episodes of The Crown are you into? Well, I'm glad you asked, Charlotte, because <laughs> I was actually asked the premiere of The Crown. So Netflix oh, that's so did an swanky. online screening, which I obviously Instagrammed my incredible privilege. And uh, I saw the first two episodes, which were fantastic. I haven't yet sat down to watch the rest of it because we're stuck watching something called All of Us, which is, I think, on Amazon Prime, which we're also addicted to, which is terribly sort of schmaltzy Americana, but we love it. But The Crown looks about as fabulous as it could be, and the royal family is being extremely helpful by telling the press how annoyed they are by it, thus giving it even more publicity. I know. I, she's very, very good, uh, Princess Diana. She's got all the mannerisms down to a T, hasn't she? And the clothes. I'm just loving all those old Inca jumpers and Adina Rone cardigans and things. <laughs> it's, just, it's just such a wonderful slice of the early 80s, isn't it? So now I'm very keen to talk about Steve McQueen's small acts. Steve McQueen probably needs no introduction. Brilliant artist, of course, and Oscar-winning director of 12 Years a Slave. And he's directed some other great films like Hunger and my absolute favourite, Shame, with Michael Fassbender and Kerry Mulligan. 
Anyway, he's now turned his hand to five dramas set between 1969 and 1982 in London's West Indian community. They're all stories of hard-won victories against racism and the first about the mangrove in All Saints Road aired on Monday. Did you see it, Ed? Well, I'm glad you asked me that, Charlotte, because I did see Mangrove because I was invited to the premiere. Oh, my goodness. As part of the PF (laughs) London Film Festival. So I watched the premiere of Mangrove some three or four weeks before it aired on the BBC. But to be serious for a minute, Steve McQueen is an absolutely formidable uh, film director, as well as an artist. People forget that he is uh, a famous artist as well. And... These are really important and brilliant films, obviously, about racism and discrimination in England, uh, the kind of racism that one saw in the 70s that was sort of pretty mainstream, if I can put it that way. And um, I think, he, you know, Steve McQueen is a brilliant advocate for diversity in film. In fact, I read a story this week that he refused to carry on shooting at one point when he discovered that uh, there were no people of colour on his crew. Um, and I think, frankly, we need people like Steve McQueen really holding the industry to account. Sorry to get a bit political here, but holding the industry to account for its incredible lack of diversity. No, I agree. And actually, funny enough, years ago, when I was still making documentaries, I worked for a company that um, worked with Darkus Howe, who is, of course, at the centre of the first uh, yeah, small action. Yeah, I mean, Darkus Howe was a, an amazing kind of public figure. Amazing. Growing up, and I had no idea about the mangrove, uh, and I don't apologise too much for that because I think Malachi Kirby, who plays him, also said he had no idea about uh, the mangrove uh, trial. I mean, I actually cried in the courtroom drama. It was so good, and Malachi Kirby was absolutely fantastic. And also, Alex Jennings was a wonderful judge, wasn't he? Sort of chilly, oh. classic, but you know, I upper stopped, crust um, judge. I stopped your anecdote about Marcus. No, I'm just saying I spent all that time all those years ago in a company at which he was also uh, presenting documentaries. And I I just I just didn't quite know about this extraordinary court case and how brilliant he'd been at the Old Bailey and what a turning point that was. I mean, it's absolutely he was brilliant, wasn't he? And so brave just to take it on. I mean, it's a real slice of history about how London started to change and it's it as you say it's it's kind of essential viewing much as you know we'd love just to wallow in the crown this is really brilliant television yeah, I mean there's so much uh good uh television drama on and I think it's you know it's it's an interesting you know what would I say I'd say that we could potentially go and see Mangrove in, in a cinema and in many ways I wish I could but the quality of drama that you can get on television at the moment the misery of lockdown is definitely mitigated. I mean, obviously, Small Axe is up there and exactly the kind of thing the BBC should be doing. So that's fantastic. We love The Crown. Uh, and obviously, I also dip into this schmaltzy stuff like all of us. But um, you basically can stay at home and <laughs> to the telly and get a whole range of different content that is absolutely first class in my view. But anyway... That is all we have time for this week. So the details of everything we've talked about will be on our website, as always. And you can sign up to our newsletters at countryandtownhouse.co.uk slash newsletter. Please keep listening and please subscribe because apparently the algorithm loves it when you subscribe and moves us up the rankings. And that way, <laughs> spread the word. <laughs>